Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Market Journal. I'm Bryce Stuskit. The month of May continues to roll on and we've got lots of ground to cover on this week's show. That includes some details on how to collect and submit crop samples and send them into the UNL plant and pest diagnostic center. We'll also go one-on-one -on -one with the president and CEO of a 100-year-old cooperative that has grown to be now in more than 50 countries today. Doug Simon from Trenos will also join us a bit later in the program as we discuss the latest when it comes to the markets. That is a look at what we've got coming up on today's show, but we begin by heading out and into the field. We visit now with my colleague Clay Patton from the Rural Radio Network, who this past week took part in the Hard Winter Wheat Tour, hosted, of course, by the Wheat Quality Council. Clay, you're joining us today as you're just outside of Hebron, Nebraska. Much of that tour, though, focused on the state of Kansas. They dipped down into Oklahoma a bit as well. Broadly speaking, what's the purpose of the tour, Clay? So what the Wheat Quality Council has done now for decades has been able to merge those who are integral in the wheat industry on the backside and the processing side with the farming side of it. So back in the early days, early 1900s, oftentimes wheat farmers would invite bakers from Kansas City to tour the wheat crop. Today, this involves wheat millers, bakers, and others in the industry, including those who often trade in the markets, to come and see the crop firsthand, get a get out into the farm fields and see what's happening with the winter wheat crop. Focused mainly on Kansas, Kansas is that is where a large majority of the hard red winter wheat comes from and this year we're having the opportunity unfortunately it parallels 2022 and being what looks to be a rougher crop. All right, Clay, well, let's talk about it then. What are you seeing out in those fields? So just out the gate, we start in Manhattan, Kansas on the first day of the tour, and now we're in Hebron, Nebraska. The first stop out of the gun right there near Clay Center, Kansas, was a really solid field. 49 bushels per acre is where our formula estimated it at. It was a good, thick stand, no disease pressure. The second one, just a little further to the north and to the west, that's where we start to see a little bit of freeze damage. Uh, we estimated about 10% of the field being affected by that. Here in Thayer County, here on the south side of Hebron, and we're seeing one of the poorest fields we've seen so far on the trip, only about 18 bushels per acre, unfortunately. With that, I had the opportunity to talk with the farmer that actually owns this ground. It is in behind some soybean uh, ground, so it's a soybean wheat type rotation. Wheat typically does perform a little poorer in behind the soybeans, but given the fact that they're well under their average for uh, precipitation in this area, it's struggling. We me measured a four inch crack here in the soil. So again, subsoil moisture is tough in this part of the country. Clay, you mentioned the abandoned acres. What do you think is going to happen to those abandoned acres? What are you hearing? You know, that's a really interesting question. I had the opportunity to talk with Gary Miller-Shasky, who's president of the Kansas Wheat Commission currently. He's a farmer in southwest Kansas, and he notes just in his area upwards of four to 5,000 abandoned acres. And a lot of guys are trying to put in another crop if they've got some subsoil moisture. Maybe they're trying in with some milo. Other guys putting in some ryegrass just to try and create a forage crop. Others going to an old system of fallow ground where they're going to let that uh, ground just sit here for the next year, see if it can't gather some moisture up, and then try to come back in with more of a cash crop next year. All right, Clay, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing that insight. By the way, the tour made 318 stops on Tuesday. They calculated a yield of just shy of 30 bushels per acre. If realized, that'd be nearly 10 bushels lower than the yield that they measured last year. Final numbers will be posted online at the website, ruralreadionetwork.com.
As we move on now, we've discussed it before here on Market Journal, but recently we had the chance to see it in action out in the field. UNL researchers expanded a project this year as they work to autonomously plant using a machine that they call FlexRope. Market Journal's Mike Straub has this story with some footage from the field. Mike? For the past several years, a team at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln have been working on a new piece of technology that is geared towards making field maintenance much easier. Their solution is an innovation called FlexRow. This is an unmanned ground vehicle that can distribute seeds, chemicals, and fertilizers. We have a multi-purpose robotic platform called FlexRow. Uh, and like I said, it's multi-purpose, so we could do planting, we could do phenotyping, and also spraying. So we are going towards climate smart, agriculture which is really important and uh, robotic tools and technology tools have a big role to play so we see FlexRow as one of those important robotic tools uh, that can do very precise operations in the field uh, uh, while saving costs um, and uh, if you think about targeted spraying so only spray where things are needed instead of uh, uh, spraying throughout the field. Uh, fertilizer application is another one uh, we're exploring where can we do very targeted uh, fertilizer application. The flex row is intended for multi-purposes and is built to be modular. And uh, when we started our goal was how can we develop a field usable robotic platform um, that is modular but also um, it should have the ability to do multiple operations. Um, so we have six computers on this machine uh, that exchange information or a network called CAN bus um, so that uh, we can do very precise operations. Um, and also we're using different camera technologies um, to look at uh, uh, green pixel fraction, which is basically um, uh, in an image, how much greenness is there. Uh, we're using spectrometers that tells us uh, nutrient deficiencies. Um, um, you know, so, so there's a lot of sensor technologies that we're using and uh, using all that information to make decisions uh, so that we can very precisely do site-specific management. While someday the FlexRow could be a part of everyday use for farmers and producers, Developing farmer-friendly robotic solutions that are easy to use involves a lot of obstacles. So we are at a, uh, this is a research prototype. So taking this to an actual product that farmers can actually use is a is a big hurdle. You know, so uh, so how do you uh, how do you make a product out of a prototype, right? So that's very important. You know, so I'm exploring if uh, some of my students they want to do this as a startup company. That is one way to do it. You know. Uh, take the uh, take the intellectual property we developed and make it into a company. So that's one avenue. Um, and um, I think the point, the important point, is how can we develop farmer farmer friendly robotic solutions? Uh, is what is important. How can how can we give a system to a farmer? Uh, that is not too complex, you know, uh, and it is easy to use. So there is a lot of thought that needs to go into it. So it's not like research, right? So in research, we are aware of the system, how it works. If there's a problem, we know how to troubleshoot it. But when we're giving the system to a farmer, it needs to be really well thought out. But I would say maybe in the next uh, three to four years, um, this type of technology will be available. FlexRoll could be a product which, in the future, could aid researchers with a few acres of plots to farmers with thousands of acres. 
Before this can happen, however, there are some hurdles to overcome. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Mike Straub. All right, thanks for that story, Mike. Pretty cool to see that flex row in action out there at the Rogers Memorial Farm. If you're not sure where it's located, it's just east of the capital city of Lincoln. Moving on now, she is the president and chief executive officer of one of, the, of America's premier agribusiness and food companies. Beth Ford was a guest last week at a Hearman lecture titled Uncharted Waters, Why Everyone Should Care About the Global Water Crisis. We had the chance to visit with her one-on-one -on -one about her lecture and some of the challenges she sees on the horizon for the ag industry. Joining us now is the president and CEO of Lando Lakes, that is Beth Ford, who welcome you to the university. Thank welcome you. back to Nebraska. Thank you. Well, you gave your lecture here about water. Broadly speaking, 30,000 foot perspective, what was the message you wanted to share? What I'm trying to do, we have kind of a, a thought process in our business and you know, we are a farmer-owned cooperative, also a hundred-year-old uh, business and uh, you know, a Fortune 200 company. So it's in kind of plays against um, all areas. What we try to do is say, we, we focus on things with awareness, advocacy, action, awareness, advocacy, action. Now here at uh, the university, I think, and especially since we're in an ag state, folks are more aware of water, why it's so critically important to the food production. Um, what I wanted to leave um, uh, a message on was the critical nature of us informing others, of us being in multiple different types of rooms to make sure everybody understood the fragility of the food supply, why water is so critically important to food production. You know, water demand set to outstrip supply by 56% globally by 2030. That's in the near end. And then I wanted to say, you know, let's connect the dots. It's not just water, it's ag research funding. And here we again, we are at uh, the university where ag research is, is a primary area of interest and, and focus and why that's so critical. Drought tolerance seeds, you know, applied research, and that will help us meet that grand challenge of feeding a growing world population set to grow to 9.5 to 10 billion by 2050. We'll talk more about the, the funding of some ag research here in a moment. Back on the water challenges, here in Nebraska we see our backyard, our front yard, so to speak. A lot of dry areas across the state of Nebraska right now, but from where you see agriculture across the whole U.S. and truly across the world, what are some of the key challenges you think people should be aware of? Well, you know, water policy and water investment is local, but it has a global impact. And especially on um, in the United States, food security is national security. I'd say that globally. You know, we, there's an interconnected nature of, um, of food and the food supply chain, food value chain globally. So when you think about investment and when you think about this locally, you know, and, and here to your point, you know, this has been as there have been areas that have been um, in drought. If you go to Kansas, they've been in drought. California, they've been in drought. Um, they've certainly had a lot of water over the um, last number of months, but at the same time the question ends up being what has been the infrastructure investment on the water capture, the reservoirs? What about over the long term? Do we understand the drought, potential drought conditions? And then how should we think of this? And oftentimes what comes up is um, you know, some local discussion, not a wrong discussion. This isn't a local versus not, states' rights versus federal, you know, that's not what I'm interested in. I am interested in saying we have to elevate the conversation for primary industries or primary protective areas, in this instance, the food supply, and say whatever decisions we make on investment in areas, especially where production agriculture occurs, it needs to be with somewhat of a lens of saying, what are we going to do to meet this challenge of feeding a growing world population? So we talk about the investment, particularly on the federal end of things. Uh, we've got an upcoming farm bill coming up, obviously. 
One of the talking points I hear is about China's investment into food and ag compared to the U.S. I'm sure you have that stat uh, fairly familiar. Share with us what that stat is and some of the challenges you see with it. Yeah, ag research funding at the federal level here in the United States has fallen to 1970s level. That's, uh, for me, a very scary um, thought. China's outspending us five to one on investment because their whole focus, and they've stated this, is to be food self-sufficient. Now, aren't we fortunate? We have some of the best land in the world, best farm practices, great yield, great farmers, uh, et cetera. And we are uh, food self-sufficient, but globally, what leads to geopolitical instability is an inability to feed your family. That's why we see a lot of these climate immigrants coming up from the South. Where was the food? Where, where were the grains going from Ukraine? They were going into North Africa, another unstable area geopolitically. So all of these things kind of fit together. And um, here we are in the state, great state of Nebraska, a production area that is so critically important. And I just want us to make sure that we have that conversation more broadly. Now, if you missed that lecture, you can watch it online by visiting the link that we've attached with this story. You can find that on the Market Journal website. Well, it is now time to turn our attention over to the markets. This week, we were joined on Wednesday afternoon in the studio by Doug Simon from Trados. Let's begin this conversation talking about wheat. Of course, we had our update from Clay when it comes to the wheat report and what they're seeing down there. USDA also came out with some of their projections on, on uh, their latest report. I guess, what are you seeing in that market? What's the big picture? Last Friday, the, that was the one big surprise from the report. They were down 100 million bushels below the trade expectations. So those numbers, when you look at hard red winter wheat, we're down to about as low as what we were in 2007 and 8, about 140 million bushel carryover. So it definitely tightened up the, the balance sheet. And we went to 1380s back in 2007 and 8, and now we're more in the $9 range, 885, I think, today on, on Wednesday. So we're not anywhere near those high prices that we were in 2007 and 8, but we were there last May, a year ago, when the Ukraine war broke out. So we've had a big washout in the wheat market, but everybody in Nebraska knows that our wheat's really in terrible shape. It's, um, I, don't, I know people that aren't even going to take out the combines, you know, because the wheat is so poor. It hasn't improved with the rain that we've had lately, so it'll be interesting to see what they see on the Kansas wheat tour there. I think they were down, what, 10% um, on the numbers uh, on, out of Kansas yesterday. I haven't heard anything on Wednesday yet. But uh, when you look at big picture, though, too, on wheat carryover, the uh, stocks are actually, in the U.S., about 600 million bushels, and we were about 300 million bushels in 07, 08. So we definitely have more wheat on hand here in the U.S., but when you look at like the world numbers, we actually have more wheat on hand as well, but the, we always look at it as economists, like a stocks to what we use ratio, and those are both what, kind of similar to what they were in 19, uh, or about 19% back in 2007 and eight when we had that big run of wheat. So this is, there could be some more excitement in the wheat because as poor as a crop is, uh, it's really it's really tightened up even more. And that was different for USA to come out and be that aggressive cutting wheat, but also cutting abandonment. And Kansas is supposed to be about almost 20% of the wheat's going to be abandoned. Yeah. Maybe about 15% in Nebraska, but it's a bigger deal in Kansas because they're number one producer of wheat. We're number 15. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let's travel outside the U.S. borders. You're talking about kind of the world stage there. Mention something that's happened today. The Ukrainian Grain Corps, we talked about that last week, is being extended another two months. Is that what you're hearing? That's what the report came out today, kind of later this morning, that they were going to extend that for two months. And really, it has to have some you know, consideration from Russia. I think that's in their best interest because they want to continue to try to move wheat. It's not really granted any favors to the Ukrainians, but more their self-interest. 
All right, let's talk corn and soybeans for a bit. As you and I have this conversation again on Wednesday afternoon, the charts are not looking pretty. A bit of a sell-off today. Why, or is there a why this time? Well, I think it's a continuation. We had the reports last Friday, and the numbers that came out, the carryovers that had there, about 2.2 billion bushels on corn, about um, you know 335 million bushels on the soybean side. Those are numbers that we saw from commercials, the the uh, USD outlook forum was at those numbers, you know, back in February, maybe a touch higher than what those numbers were, but they were about 10% more each of those than what the what they were expecting from the you know traders' expectations. So um, they cut exports on the corn side of it, which was granted should have been done, uh, but you know, big picture, they also added some more production to Brazil. They didn't cut the production in Argentina on the corn and the beans as much as what some of the traders were thinking. So overall, the report came out, it was very bearish. It went down, corn went down to what, 572. It went down kind of close to that uh, low that we put in. Now today, we kind of just blew through that because of initially there was another cancellation of export sell to China, about 10 million bushels. And then later in the morning, they announced the Ukraine deal. But a lot of it's just fund selling. The funds are now short about 110,000 contracts of corn and about 120,000 contracts of wheat. That's just when they start getting into a trend, they just push it and they, you know, they exaggerate it and push it even further. One of the things you like to hit on when you come on to Market Journal, and I appreciate this, the, what are we going to do about it? What are the strategies we can do today because of what's happening in the market? Yeah. So what are some of your thoughts there? I'm sure particularly when it comes to basis. Yeah, well, basis is very, it's firmed up here in the last couple of weeks with the futures, you know, falling off. We're a dollar over at Albion Markets. Columbus is 95. We're 95 up in northeast or northwest Iowa. So if you need to move corn, the basis levels are good. You can always do something, reown it on the board. Call uh, volatility is pretty cheap right now. You can rebuy, you know, reown that corn if you need to. But again, like looking at new crop corn, seasonality-wise, we're still probably in a you know a downward seasonal more aggressively on corn than we are on beans. The bean seasonality really kind of gives you opportunities here, April, May, June, kind of July. Um, but it, I think we still need to look at you know continuing to make sales. We've been talking about that all the way since last January about making incremental sales in here. But you still need to kind of keep hitting some increments. It's a good way to do it if you, you don't really feel good about selling in here or still to use some options. Today's a better day than any if you're going to do something, buy puts, or if you're going to sell it, you know, probably go out and hedge it. You can buy some calls to go with it, keep some flexibility in the market, especially as hard as they've hit it in the last you know, month here on corn and on beans. Thanks to Doug for taking the time of his week to join us. Coming up next week, we'll be headed out to Briggs Feed Yard. Catch up with our friend Mike Briggs to discuss the latest when it comes to the cattle markets. If you have a question you'd like me to ask Mike, be sure to email us and I'll be sure to pass your question along. Well, let's talk weather now with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Bill, sounds like more warm weather is headed our way, right? Well, yes, the short answer is we are going to see some warm to hot temperatures uh, throughout the week here. I guess seasonal to above normal temperatures would be a great way to describe it. But we've also had some good moisture here over the last uh, week uh, to 10 days, and we've got some improvement. Latest drought monitor released on Thursday. We still have extreme drought conditions here in portions of central and eastern Nebraska. We'll call it east central through northeast Nebraska. And the, the worst of the drought conditions and exceptional drought conditions there in a uh, seven or eight county region encompassed in there. The good news is we've had improvement on the other end of the state here from portions of the Sand Hills down through southwest Nebraska, then back up through the Panhandle. Those areas were in the extreme drought condition. They've been dropped a category to severe, still in the drought conditions, but severe a category better than extreme 
And I think we'll see some improvement in that as we've seen even more moisture the last couple of days. Take a look at why we've seen the improvements in part of the state and not the other. This is year to day uh, precip. We're running here in uh, north, northern Nebraska, half an inch or so uh, above normal, but from Broken Bow down through North Platte, two, two and a half inches. Imperial over four inches above normal for the year, uh, almost two inches in McCook, a little over an inch above normal in Sydney. Scotts Bluff and Shadron both two and a quarter to two and a half inches above normal. But look at the other side of the state. The Tri-Cities almost three inches below, uh, two and three quarters below in Norfolk, almost two inches below in Omaha and four inches below normal year to date in Lincoln. That's why those areas continue to see the drought holding on or even intensifying in some areas while the rest of the state is seeing improving conditions. But we've got some improvement for those areas, I think, late on in this week. Not this weekend. It is gorgeous. Get out and enjoy it. It's going to be very quiet, just maybe an isolated thunderstorm. Uh, tomorrow night. Otherwise, we go through the weekend dry and we start next week with some isolated late day showers and thunderstorms, mainly in western Nebraska Monday and Tuesday. And then again on Wednesday, we're going to see some hit or miss showers and storms in the late afternoon and evening hours in the central and west. Now by Thursday, those spread more across the state. And notice what happens as we go into Friday afternoon and evening. The model's throwing out some heavy rain here in central and eastern Nebraska. We'll have to pay close attention to that. Temperatures are going to be in the 80s uh, through the weekend and then even some 90s sneaking in here as we get into next week. As you can see, above normal temperatures seem to be coming our way for the rest of this week. And that doesn't change as we take a look at uh, precip, most heavy on the eastern half of the state. 8 to 14 day outlook has temperatures above normal and precip near normal. So hopefully we're able to get some mild temperatures and some rain for everyone. All right, thank you very much for that update, Bill. We'll keep our fingers crossed when it comes to getting some moisture. Well, recently here on Crop Talk, we discussed some of the seedling diseases you want to keep an eye out for when it comes to your corn crop. If you plan to submit any samples into UNL's Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic, there are a few basic steps you'll want to follow to get the best results possible. We talked with UNL's Kyle Broderick to learn a little bit more about that process, but it began by sharing an overview of the clinic. Yeah, so really we are here to provide diagnostic support to farmers in Nebraska and surrounding areas. And so within the diagnostic clinic, we receive samples, not from all 50 states, but you know, in, the, in my seven years, I think we've hit about 40 different states that we've received samples for. So, so not just Nebraska growers, but really, really can be nationwide. And you know, I primarily focus on the diseases, so fungi, bacteria, viruses, things like that. And this time of year, you know, everybody's gunning to get into the field if they had and plant, want to see stuff coming up out of the ground just fine. But unfortunately, as stuff's coming up, maybe it's not coming up as even as, as one would hope. And, and that's really where the diagnostic clinic can come in to provide, provide to, just to provide a few answers. And because one of the biggest issues with seedling diseases is they can all look the same. And it's, it's rare that we can tell a whole lot about what the different disease is in the field. Is it Rhizoctonia? Is it Fusarium? Honestly, in the field, they look almost identical. Kyle, you set up the why behind this pretty well as you talk about that. I think it is sometimes tempting, though, as you look out in a the field, there's some uneven spots to say, ah, it'll, it'll eventually come back. I don't need to sample this this year. I guess debunk that. Tell us a little bit more of the why. You know, it's the, the reality is, 
most of it's probably not may, it may come up a little bit but you're gonna be right now is the most important time to get a good start on plant growth if some of these plants start off behind maybe it's just a smaller pocket they start off a little bit stunted um, they're not growing quite as as well as as the rest of the field those plants are never going to catch up and so that area is always going to be always going to be a little bit of a yield drag for you and unfortunately as we're as we're moving throughout the field we are now spreading these diseases around anything that moves the soil is going to move some of these diseases and so as, uh, as we're cultivating as we're as we're applying any pesticides we're spreading those around and if we have the right environmental conditions what was once a small patch can become a pretty large segment of the field and once you know replanting is always an option but you really don't want to replant and have the exact same thing happen again well hopefully we've convinced the viewers today to go through this process and send some samples in so let's walk through the steps if they choose to do so first one is to collect what's that look like yeah so really when uh, collecting some samples what one thing that we ask is that we get both some uh, very diseased, but also some healthy samples as well. We also ask that you send as much material as, as you're happy to part with. One of the things that's always kind of a, kind of a pet peeve of mine is when I'll get a sample from a, from a 160 acre soybean field and I will get two plants, you know, and there's a lot more than two plants in that 160 acre field. They're not gonna, the grower's not gonna miss those at all. Um, and so the more samples that we receive, the better. Ideally, at least four to six um, disease samples. That way, you know, we have some other plants we can go back to, pull a fresh sample if we need to, tr um, try to isolate from a different area without having to call you, ask you to go out and collect some more, some more soil. And as we're actually collecting those plant samples, we're after about four to six um, disease plant samples, we're gonna dig up that entire plant uh, and, and including the root ball and try to collect as much of the roots as you can we do ask that you maybe try to shake some of that dirt off, but it's really not going to be, be the end of the world. Then, uh, if you could please put that into a, into a plastic, a sealable plastic bag, something like a Ziploc bag works, works really well, with a couple of dry paper towels. We never want to add moisture to our samples, because if we're adding excess moisture, now we're basically creating an ideal environment for any fungus, any bacteria to thrive. And by the time I have, can look at, the, look at the sample, maybe it's two, three days after you've collected it, maybe something else has started growing in there if you've added some, some damp, um, damp paper towels instead of those dry paper towels. If you're interested in learning more about some of those steps in submitting your samples into the plant and pest diagnostic clinic at UNL, we've included a helpful link along with this interview. You can find that on the Market Journal website. Well, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Market Journal. If you didn't miss a story, be sure you're following the Market Journal team on social media and on YouTube to join in on the conversation. We do hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.